0: You can't make this stuff up. It would be rejected as a Hollywood script.
1: I had the honor and the privilege to discuss the Lewis and Clark expedition with Clay Jenkinson, who I will properly introduce here shortly. This show will be very enlightening, and it is rich with details you've probably never heard before about the Lewis and Clark expedition. Let's give it a listen. I'm here with American humanities scholar, historian, educator, and author Clay Jenkinson. He is currently the director of the Dakota Institute, where he co hosts public radio's The Thomas Jefferson Hour. He also publishes a quarterly on the Lewis and Clark expedition he will mention later on. And, just an interesting FYI, you may have seen him on the Colbert Report. Clay, welcome to the show.
0: Miles, thanks for having me. This is a a wonderful subject, and I'm always really glad to talk about it.
1: I also love talking about it. And just to set the table here for this, I have a bit of an international audience with some young listeners as well. So why don't we talk about what the expedition was, who commissioned it, who led it, and go into those details just as an overall summary.
0: Certainly. So it begins with Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was a man of the Enlightenment. He was deeply curious. He wanted to know what was out in the interior of the continent. At the time, in 1803, when Jefferson was serving his first term as president, the population of the United States was about 6 million. And over 80% of those Americans were on the uh, eastern seaboard within 50 or so miles of the Atlantic Ocean. So the, the interior across the Appalachians all the way to the Mississippi and Missouri and the Rocky Mountains and beyond was essentially unknown territory, terra incognita. And Jefferson wanted to know what was there. He wanted an inventory of the continent and he wanted to determine whether there was a water passage across North America, the Northwest Passage. And he wanted to know about Native Americans um, and whether we could find a way to live in peace with them and so on. So he had attempted previously to get expeditions into the West, but they had not occurred. Now he was president. He talked Congress into appropriating money to send a party of 12 to 15 men from St. Louis, which is the mouth of the Missouri River, all the way to the Pacific and back again. And he chose as his uh, expedition leader, a a protege of his, a young friend of his named Meriwether Lewis. Lewis grew up within sight of Jefferson's Monticello in Virginia. So the United States was just beginning its immense uh, run as as a continental nation and eventually a world empire. And Jefferson believed that the future of America lay in the American West. So this was his attempt to get us started, to to learn something about this territory and to begin the planning for what would eventually be settlement of the lands beyond uh, the Mississippi River. And just one more thing, um, just at that time, he makes the Louisiana Purchase. So Jefferson didn't really want to buy the Louisiana Territory, which is Uh, all the lands between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains, but he negotiated with Napoleon in France. Napoleon and France owned the Louisiana Territory at the time, and um, Jefferson was seeking really something much more modest, but Napoleon said, take all of it and offered it to us for three cents per acre. So in 1803, Jefferson doubled the size of the United States with 828,000 square miles, 575 million acres for three cents per acre. And now it became imperative that we examine what we had purchased to determine its resources, its peoples, its its river systems, and so on.
1: Something that I had read was that Jefferson believed that it would be hundreds of generations before we eventually settled the West. Could you confirm that?
0: In his first inaugural address, which he delivered on the 4th of March, 1801, Jefferson spoke in these glowing terms about the future of America. He was was probably America's greatest single optimist. And he said, we have room enough for the hundredth and the thousandth generation. So that phrase has been interpreted to mean uh, a very long time before we eventually reach the Pacific Ocean. Um, Probably not a thousand years, but it would take a thousand years to fill the continent. And of course, he was wrong. The 19th century was a breathtaking period of westward expansion. This is when the term manifest destiny was coined as if it was God's purpose that America um, occupy and control the, all of the, what became the United States. So, Jefferson didn't anticipate the technologies of the 19th century. So, things like telegraphs and railroads and Gatling guns and so on. And he didn't anticipate the wholesale immigration from Europe that would come to American shores uh, during the 19th century. So we speeded it up. And that's part of the tragedy of this story, Miles. We speeded it up and nobody could have probably controlled this. But because of that, this put just gigantic pressure on the indigenous peoples who were already living on this place. You know, in other words, the, the continent was not empty. The continent was full was full of Native Americans, and if we had moved more slowly across the continent, the tragedy would have been less severe. There would have been more time for the two cultures to get to know each other and to adjust, but if you, it was sort of like a juggernaut. The American industrial juggernaut just rolled across the West during the 19th century, and it wound up treating Native peoples really ruthlessly.
1: What impact do you think the Homestead Act had on the expedition of settling the West.
0: 1862, um, the Confederacy has left the Union, so it's the Civil War. Um, this enables Congress to do a number of things that had got held up in, in Congress before then. Um, the 1850s were a time of paralysis in Congress, just as they are now. And because of the the departure of the Confederacy, the Union legislation, the U.S. Congress um, was able to do some things that it had been wanting to do. And one of them was the Homestead Act, 1862, which meant that anyone uh, of any nationality who came out to some place in the West that was unoccupied could choose 160 acres, a quarter of a section, um, and file on it for a very small filing fee. And if they lived on it for five years and made some improvements on it, they would get title to that land. And so this is one of the greatest land distribution systems in human history. And I grew up thinking that it was really an amazing and generous thing. However, you have to realize that these lands were carved out of Native American homelands. And so suddenly white people turn up and file a homestead in the middle of Mandan territory or Cheyenne territory or Shoshone territory or Lakota territory. And the native peoples were not consulted. And of course, they were not happy about this So on the one hand, this peopled the Great Plains and and accelerated our white settlement of the American West. But the more we learn about this now, the more we realize that it had tragic consequences for the people who were already living there. So this came long after Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark, when they came up the river 1803, 1804, 1805, and 1806, told Native peoples, "We're not here to buy a single acre of your land." We're just passing through, but sometime down the road, other people like us will arrive and we hope that you will treat them with generosity and help them along. But it was a, a good 60 years after Lewis and Clark that this began to happen.
1: Was one of the reasons why Thomas Jefferson wanted to explore the West because he wanted to establish a trade route with Asia? Is that one of the reasons why?
0: Yes, he was hoping that Lewis and Clark would find a river passage through North America. So he hoped that they would go up the Missouri all the way to its source in southwestern Montana. And then there would be a relatively low dividing ridge, a kind of Cumberland Gap. And they would then pick up waters of the Columbia River system on the other side. And with one small portage, uh, they would be able to go all the way from Pittsburgh to the West Coast. And the, at this time, the furs that were being trapped in North America were selling for really large amounts in China. And so Jefferson hoped to get us in on the China trade. And since there wasn't a, a sea-bearing Northwest Passage, not until now with global climate change, but then there was no sea passage, he hoped that there would be a river system that would cooperate. That didn't happen. What One of the major discoveries of the Lewis and Clark Expedition is that the rivers don't cooperate, that Lewis reported to Jefferson when they got back, that it's about 340 miles between navigable waters of the Missouri and navigable waters of the Columbia, including a mountain range that had almost eternal snow, uh, 11 or 10 months per year. And so this really represented an, an impediment to the idea that America would easily get into that China trade
1: and going along with the theme of facing unexpected challenges, what examples of this expedition do you have of Lewis and Clark demonstrating good planning, leadership, resiliency, and just overall good luck? Do you have any examples?
0: Well, the m- most important thing is to remember that when they left St. Louis on May fourteenth, eighteen 1804, in three boats, a 55-foot keel boat. Um, and two flat-bottom boats called pirogues. They had about 50 men, and they had 30 tons worth of gear. So just an immense amount of gear, rifles, surveying equipment, tools to determine latitude and longitude, a small portable library, gifts uh, and trade items uh, with which to uh, treat with Native peoples, food, uh, and so on. They had this immense baggage, but when they they left St. Louis, they had no hope of resupply. In other words, they were going on a two- or three-year mission where they had no realistic hope of being resupplied, so they had to take absolutely everything with them that they might need. If they didn't have it, they were out of luck. There were no stores. There were no Ace Hardware stores. There was no Amazon.com. They hoped maybe there might be a trade ship um, at the mouth of the Columbia, uh, and that they would be able to um, buy some things there. That did not happen. And so this is an enormous burden to, to have to plan so carefully that you have everything you're going to need. And it turns out they did. When they got back in 1806, they still had enough um, lead and gunpowder to make the trip at least one more time. So that's the most important thing you have to have. Uh, their clothing soon wore out. So they had to dress in the skins of deer and elk and so on and wear moccasins. Uh, They ate mostly off the land, and they were very successful in this, except for one brief period in the Rocky Mountains. So it it was an extremely well-planned expedition. But here's the thing that broke down, things that seem small to us. They ran out of whiskey on the 4th of July, 1805 at Great Falls in Montana. So they still weren't even to the Pacific Ocean. And now they had to get to the Pacific and come all the way back without alcohol. And alcohol is not only a, a, a pleasurable recreation after a hard day of work, but it was a requirement in the U.S. Army that, that the enlisted men be given a small quantity of whiskey per day. So that was an issue. And you can't carry a lot of alcohol because it's so heavy. And you can't make it in the field because you're moving They also ran out of tobacco. And Lewis actually said that the men were more concerned about running out of tobacco than they were about running out of whiskey. And then they also ran out of, I think more importantly, trade goods. They had started with 14 bales of Indian trade goods. Um, Those bales would be the size of a large hay bale today, $669.50 worth, about a quarter of their budget. But they ran out by the time they got to the Pacific. And as they turned back in March of 1806, Lewis said, everything we have now to trade for all the return journey, for ferrying services, to buy firewood, to buy horses, to uh, secure guides, everything we now have to trade can be contained in two small handkerchiefs, you know, a few old broken pieces of mirror and some fish hooks and some awls, you know, punch awls and so on. And so they, they had to come back to uh, St. Louis in 1806 essentially bankrupt, which put enormous pressure uh, on the return journey. They had to really be incredibly resourceful, and the way they did it was this. Medicine was really primitive in this time, but at least they had a medicine kit, and they found that Native Americans who had problems with their eyes or had broken bones or dislocated shoulders or uh, scars or uh, rashes and so on came to them believing that white people had special powers and clark sort of became a frontier medicine man uh, giving people eye ointments and and resetting bones and so on and this became almost their sole means of getting the things they needed from the native peoples that they encountered and both lewis and clark say "Eh, it feels a little awkward this you know we're not i guess we're not doing them any harm But they knew that these were largely uh, sort of parlor tricks. But that's what they were reduced to on the return journey. So I'd say that the most important takeaway of this conversation is that this was an extremely well-planned expedition. It could not have been planned better. And, of course, behind it is none other than America's Leonardo da Vinci, Thomas Jefferson. So that's part of why it was so well-planned. The second thing I would say is that they had enormous good luck Uh, that when they needed something to happen, it often did. And when something could have gone terribly wrong, it usually didn't. Uh, And the resilience is something I don't think people in the 21st century can understand. So to to sort of get a a sense of the profile of these men, these were mostly volunteers, you have to sort of think of Navy SEALs or uh, Green Berets or... Uh, people who who do marathons or triathlons or uh, even more severe physical adventures. These were men with the right stuff. And when Lewis was describing to Clark the kind of men he wanted, he said, "I wanted unmarried men, not gentlemen's sons, so you know working class, not middle or upper class, unmarried, and men who had a pretty high tolerance for pain and exertion. And so that's a very particular sort of person. I not mean no disrespect, Miles, but neither you nor I could survive this expedition for even a few days.
1: Agreed. And while we're on this topic, how many men did they lose on the expedition?
0: Well, it depends on how you count. So there's a a famous medical book on the expedition called "Only One Man Died," and that's sort of true. His name was Charles Floyd. He was one of the sergeants. He was one of the um, the best liked men. He kept a journal. Uh, There were only three sergeants, and so that was a distinction that he had. But he died near today's Sioux City, Iowa, on August 20th or 21st, 1804, of probably a burst appendix. We're not sure. Um, They didn't have any capacity to really uh, diagnose what happened, but he died almost overnight. And, of course, this freaked them out because they didn't know whether they were suddenly encountering a new pathogen, a virus of some sort, but it wasn't. He, he died of natural causes, and they buried him on a, on a bluff overlooking Sioux City. There's a beautiful monument there to Charles Floyd, and he's the only member of their expedition who died. However, they did wind up killing two Blackfeet Indians, two Pegan or Pukuni, uh in northwestern Montana. Lewis led a small group to explore a river to see if it had a Canadian source because if it had a Canadian source, that would drive back the border. And he was undermanned. He met a group of eight young uh, Blackfeet men, and the skirmish occurred at the following dawn. And in that unfortunate skirmish, Lewis and his three other men wound up killing two of these young Blackfeet men. And that was the only bloodshed of the expedition. But then going back to the white people, the permanent party numbered 33... Um, they, they had 50 when they started, but they sent some men back uh, after their winter in North Dakota, and uh, two big medical incidents occurred. One is that a, um, a man named William Bratton got into some severe lower back problem, maybe sciatica or worse, slipped disc, an inflamed disc, out on the Pacific coast and nearly died, and Lewis thought he would die. He eventually recovered, but it was um, six or seven weeks when he was a complete invalid, And then uh, as they got back to North Dakota, on August 11th, 1806, uh, Lewis was hunting, and he was accidentally shot in the buttocks by one of his men, Pierre Cruzat. Uh, And fortunately, the ball, which is about the size of your thumb, uh, did not strike a bone or an artery or a nerve. So Lewis had just what was a very nasty and humiliating flesh wound. But if the bullet had been even a half an inch uh, different in its trajectory, Lewis would almost certainly have been killed.
1: That would be a humiliating wound, and not to mention treating it in the middle of the wilderness and how hard that must have been.
0: It took about a month. Um, Lewis had enormous physical resilience. You know, he was what I would call an iron man. Uh, he, was, uh, he prided himself on being tough and being able to stand pain. And one time in Montana, he had uh, dysentery, so he had running diarrhea and he made a chokecherry concoction. He took some chokecherry and, and boiled it and made this very bitter and astringent concoction and drank a quart of it, and then he walked 35 miles that day. So this is a really, really tough guy, and he recovered within a month of this shooting, uh, but he was, uh, I don't even want to talk about the medical procedures because they're so gross, but Uh, before he was fully healed, he went out in his usual way, impulsively, and overexerted himself and tore open the wound, which must have just been excruciatingly disappointing and painful. So he was able to, to walk into St. Louis at the end of the journey, but between August 11th and about September 10th, he was lying on his stomach on a barrel in the boat as it moved its way down the river. And I'm sure... This is not the way he expected to return as a hero to American civilization.
1: So returning as a hero, what was the reaction of the people as they came back? And is there any modern-day equivalent that we could base it off of?
0: It's hard to really make these comparisons, Miles, because they had no media. So, you know, today uh, he'd be... uh, on a Twitter account every day and posting photographs and videos, and uh, he would, uh, you know, be having podcasts and vlogs and blogs and newspaper articles. There was a very weak uh, media infrastructure in his time, and so most people sort of had a sense that there was something that Jefferson had done with a group of explorers, and they went out somewhere, not quite clear. When they got back, the people of St. Louis were a little surprised and said, you know, we sort of thought you were just gone forever. We didn't know what had happened, but you're a lot later coming back than we expected. So we just assumed that something terrible had happened. And uh, Lewis and Clark, the two captains, were immediately treated as sort of American heroes, but not in the sense of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, not in the sense of of, uh, a, a famous Olympic athlete in our time. It was very much more low key, but Jefferson was very pleased with their return, of course, and he arranged with Congress for a compensation package for all of the men, uh, but particularly for Lewis and Clark. But I think that Lewis sort of expected more that he thought he was now, you know, Columbus or Captain James Cook or Magellan. Uh, And when he got back, he was well-regarded. But it wasn't fame of the kind that we associate with the Kardashians or fame that we associate with um, Michael Phelps after he wins the swimming competitions in the Olympics. It was a it was much more low key. And, And I think that Lewis was a big, ambitious dreamer who pitched his his mission very high and compared himself to Columbus and Captain Cook, not not arrogantly, but but as a believer that he was doing something really important in the history of exploration and i think when he got back and sort of the phone stopped ringing of course there were no phones but when 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 there was no there were no more parades i think he fell into a kind of a depression isn't quite the right term melancholy a um, sense that you know, maybe all his vanity that, you know, that was a very large amount of exertion and it wasn't really paying off. He couldn't write the book that Jefferson wanted him to write. Jefferson appointed him to be the governor of Louisiana territory and Lewis turned out to be a bad governor. Uh, And so his life sort of came apart after the expedition, whereas Clark just sort of shrugged his shoulders and accepted life for what it is and, and wound up doing very well for himself. And so, I think one of the things that your listeners, particularly young listeners, need to know is that today, when something happens, we instantaneously know it across America and across the world. Um, But in that time, news traveled very slowly, often in a garbled way. There were very few newspapers. So most people had no way of knowing what was going on. And they had maybe heard of the expedition beforehand. But then they sort of forgot about it in the way that we forget about things. And when they came back, you know, there was some public acclaim, but it wasn't anything that can be compared to our own world.
1: What personal battles was Meriwether Lewis fighting inside himself during this time? What are some things that people don't typically know about him?
0: Well, he was the protege of the President of the United States, so there's pressure right there handpicked by Jefferson to lead this most important of exploration parties. Jefferson was not just a president like Joe Biden or Gerald Ford or Richard Nixon. Jefferson was the the author of the Declaration of Independence, you know, America's greatest figure in the Enlightenment, uh, an architect, a a paleontologist, a designer of library science. Uh, Jefferson was a Renaissance man, and so the pressure of just being Jefferson's hand-picked guy must have been great. But we also know that in, in, in addition to all that, Lewis was very tightly wound. You know, he was, um, he was mercurial. He was easily upset. Uh, he took the mission so seriously that on several occasions he says, I value my life with the success of this mission. And if we should if we should miscarry, if we should fail... You know, that that then he would not be able to value his life in full measure, and so he's he's so tightly wound and self punishing uh, that he's often I think way too hard on himself. And but 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 we don't you know we don't really have any way of understanding this. If if Neil Armstrong were solely responsible for getting Apollo eleven to the moon and back, the pressure would have been overwhelming. But he wasn't. He was really just the person at the joystick. Uh, and there was an immense army of technicians and engineers and physicists and so on behind him. So Lewis was solely in charge of getting uh, 33 people up and down this wilderness, and they went through 51 Indian nations. And so there could be hostility, there could be ambush, there could be misunderstanding. Um, As I said earlier, there could be diseases out there that we had no way of combating or even understanding. Uh, there, there could have been physical barriers, and there nearly w- were. The Rocky Mountains proved to be a very difficult period, both going out and coming back. And so Lewis took all of this as seriously as as you should, but he it kind of ate at him, and he felt the burden. So he, it's hard to understand. You know, we all people who love this story try to puzzle over why Lewis was so. Um, tightly wound about it. But I think if we had been in charge and had to bring 30 tons of equipment across the continent safely and get back and to meet with all these native peoples and do so in harmony um, and keep food on the table for everybody and so on, I think that we would feel at least some of that pressure. So whether Jefferson really understood how um, uh, neurotic, let's say, Lewis could be I don't know. Uh, they had lived together for a couple of years in the White House, so presumably Jefferson understood him well. But but Jefferson later wrote a biographical sketch of Lewis, and he said, all things considered, there was nobody in the world better prepared for this expedition than Meriwether Lewis. That I, He said, I could have no lack of confidence in him that, that he was exactly the sort of man to do this and get it right. And, and I think it's true, Miles, if you look at other explorations, Lots of people die. Um, Lewis, in only having one of his men die, and that of natural causes, is a huge monument to his success.
1: And when you look at the fruit of the mission, it was a success in so many ways. When you look at it from an angle of how many people died on the mission, he had his one crew member die, and then they had that fight with the two Native Americans— and he made it there and back successfully and logged everything and did everything. It was a success. And you can see that by the fruit.
0: And Jefferson said in his biographical sketch of Lewis that he had almost a parental regard for the men of the expedition. That you know he, he, he didn't just regard them as person A, person B, person C, person D. That he, he had a, a very serious personal commitment to their uh, safety and their success. And so you see that. But Clark turns out to have been probably better at this than Lewis. He was less tightly wound. Of course, he wasn't the commander. He uh, was not Jefferson's friend. Jefferson barely knew William Clark. Clark was uh, not uptight or tightly wound. He was the kind of man who can shrug. He had a better relationship with the men of the expedition than Lewis, who kind of kept himself more aloof. And he had a much better relationship with Native Americans than Lewis, uh, including Sacagawea. We have we've gotten this far into the interview and have not mentioned the most famous member of the expedition, the Native American uh, woman Sacagawea. And Clark and Sacagawea became friendly, maybe even friends. And Lewis always sort of held her at arm's length as the interpreter, uh, but he didn't. Um, he he doesn't waste any of his journal energy on writing about her or worrying about her. But Clark does. Clark took a special interest in Sacagawea, who had a, a, an infant son with her uh, named Jean Baptiste.
1: Yes. Why don't you give us a background on her and her origins and just an overall summary of how she fit into the party and what she contributed?
0: I can try. You know, this is <laughs> everything I'm about to say is controversial. Uh, we know almost nothing about her. We don't know when she was born but we think it was around 1787 we don't know where she was born but we think it was in idaho amongst the shoshone Uh, she we think she was digging uh, roots uh, on the plains near three forks montana when she was captured by a Hidatsa raiding party when she was 11 or so years old so she's out innocently digging for food and uh, a Hidatsa war party comes and kills some people takes her and somebody else all the way across the Montana to what's now North Dakota where she is adopted in some sense of the term into the Hidatsa world um it's not clear whether she is fully adopted or whether she's a slave or exactly what her status is but she was she became Hidatsaized her name Sakagawiya is a Hidatsa name meaning uh, bird woman. Um, so that's what we think. And she joined the expedition on November 2nd, 1804 at, in North Dakota at, at this little compound they built called Fort Mandan. And her, her husband, Toussaint Charbonneau, brought her along with some buffalo meat for the expedition. And he sort of pitched their services and said, you're going to need horses to get across the Rocky Mountains. I have this woman and her and another one, both Shoshone women, they speak that language, they'll help you get the horses, so just hire us and we'll we'll be great for you. And so Lewis and Clark were a little reluctant about that, but they did wind up hiring the Charbonneau family, including Sacagawea. So then they go with her beginning in, in the spring of 1805 and her infant son, who was born during that winter, and they go all the way across Montana and get to the Shoshone people, where she is now Has her moment. She's being called upon to to translate because, of course, Lewis and Clark don't speak Shoshone and the Shoshone don't speak English. And so she's the translator. And at that moment, this sort of almost miraculous thing occurs where they're sitting in this large council tent and Lewis says what he's going to say. There's a smoking ceremony and there's lots of ritual. But then Lewis says something like, We come in peace for all mankind, which is what explorers say. And then she's to translate this. Into Shoshone, and she looks up, and the and the 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 leader of this of this band of the Shoshone is a man named Kamiya Wait and it turns out that Kamiya Wait is her brother, and so you can't make this stuff up; it would be rejected as a Hollywood script. So they they cross all of Montana. She's been hired as a minor interpreter to help them get horses. They get into this council tent. She looks across and realizes this is her brother that she, I'm sure, never expected to see again. And he never expected to see her after she was captured. When Lewis sees this, he's sort of looking um, aside at Clark thinking, yeah, this is going to really help with the horses. You know, this is this is probably the making moment of the expedition. And so it's, a, it's one of the great romantic coincidence stories in the history of the American West. And they went on then to get the horses, and Sakagawiya had a chance to stay with her birth people, the Shoshone, but she chose to continue to spend her time with the expedition and then went all the way to the Pacific and then all the way back to North Dakota.
1: I always get emotional whenever I hear or tell that story about her meeting her brother. And I am always so impressed with the timing of it because this was a make it or break it moment for the expedition, right? Because they had rowed all the way up the river. And they had to cross all these mountains and they needed those horses. Is that correct?
0: Let's make or break. So the, the choke point of the expedition is the Rocky Mountains, the Bitterroot Mountains in on the Montana-Idaho border. If they started with 30 tons worth of gear, they had to get whatever was left. So let's say 20 tons. They had to get that over the Rocky Mountains. And now they're facing gravity and the Rocky Mountains are not the Appalachians and there's no Cumberland Gap. So they need horses. There's no way they're going to Haul all that gear on their backs over the mountains for a couple of hundred miles, and so they have to have the horses, and that's how Charbonneau had pitched his services. They said, "You're going to need horses, and she can get them for you." So this all works out perfectly. So they get, I think, 29 horses from the Shoshone. They later add another another dozen with the help of the Flathead Indians in extreme northwestern Montana, and so they have a horse herd. And if you say you have 40 or 41 horses. Each horse can probably carry up to 250 pounds worth of gear. So you have, you know, you do the math. That's about 12,000 pounds worth of stuff that they can now get over the mountains that otherwise they they simply couldn't. And so if they don't get the horses, they probably have to turn back. So she played a role in this. But even so, the Bitterroots were the most difficult time because they're higher and broader than Lewis and Jefferson could have hoped. And they had lots of trouble. It was an early winter Uh, at that latitude. The snows come in August or September. They were going through in September. Uh, They were, the trees were filled with snow and the snow was falling down on their necks and backs. Uh, They were wearing thin moccasins and their feet were getting frostbitten. The horses were tumbling down because the the slopes are so precipitous. I I go there every summer. I lead a, a tour group every summer. And people who are interested should go to my website, um, jeffersonhour.com, to find out more. But we climbed this ridge, and it's a big ordeal even now with good gear because there's so much fallen timber and so on. And so they had to do this, and they they didn't starve, of course, uh, but they had their only nutritional uh, ordeal of the expedition where the, the men were starting to lose their muscle tone because they just weren't getting enough food. And they didn't know how far they had to go. If you're an explorer, you don't know if it's 5 miles or 50 miles or 500 miles to the next uh, available site of grass and water. And so they were a little bit scared, and they were sort of running low on energy, uh, and they were starting to eat their horses because they had no choice. And Lewis is is very, very, very worried at this point. So the horses were, were critical, but even when they got them getting through the Bitterroot Mountains, was the most significant challenge that they faced. And then it happened again on the way back, of course, because they had to retrace. And now they were retracing their steps in May and June when the snow is still 20 feet high in the Rocky Mountains. And so they they had a long, difficult wait uh, to the point where there was just enough melt so that they could find a path through. And they, and, and even then they needed guides. They hired a, a couple of young Nez. Purse guides to get them through because they even their best trailsman uh, George Drouillard said that he could not have gotten them through without the help of these uh, native boys.
1: Once they made it to the Pacific, do we have any record of how they described what that felt like? What was going through their minds once they had finally made it to the end of their journey?
0: Yeah, it's a really great question, Miles. Uh, it's so disappointing they get there in mid-November 1805 uh, after this just immense continental journey. So they've reached land's end. They're on the shores of the Pacific Ocean and they say almost nothing. Lewis has stopped writing. He's uh, spiritually exhausted and he's stopped writing altogether. Clark is writing, but Clark is really writing about day-to-day stuff like leak in the canoe, uh, uh, high waves, uh, lots of tree trunks in the river, um, fog. You know, so the, Clark is writing in a very pragmatic way, but not in, a, in any way, in a heroic way. And Lewis is silent. And so they, they, they get to the big end of the journey and they're standing on the shores of the Pacific and they essentially have nothing to say. Well, partly that's because the weather is so awful there. You know, it's not, you, you, you think of Malibu and looking out on the Pacific from beautiful sands But it's not that at all. It rains 144 inches at Astoria per year. Um, The fogs are horrible. Uh, the, The river is gigantic. The mouth of the Columbia is many, 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 many miles wide. And the waves are essentially ocean waves. And the campsites that they're stuck in, they called one dismal niche. And they're just soggy and wet and grumpy. And it's not how they expected things to turn out. And believe me, I've been out there, and that's exactly the way it is today. Except that we have we have gear, but they didn't, and so they're just in their buckskins, and, and the water's swamping the canoes, and they just wish they were anywhere but there. And so there's a huge anti-climax when they get to the Pacific Coast. Well, then they soon sort of recover, and they build a compound a few miles inland that they called Fort Clatsop. But even then their winter was really just waiting until they could start back. If they had, had if they had, had the ability to start back immediately, they would have. But of course it's winter. And so they're just delaying. When when is the best time we can start back and, and have any reasonable hope of getting through the mountains? And, and and even then they started approximately two months too early. So nobody had any idea that this was what the climate was like out there. Nobody could know that the Pacific rainforest in Oregon and British Columbia, and Washington is as it is. It has to do with ocean currents and, and a lot of other factors. So they probably thought that the the Pacific Ocean would look a lot like the Atlantic Ocean, uh, including the shore life, and it just didn't. So uh, the biggest disappointment that I have in in this whole story is that Lewis went silent at these critical times, and you would expect him to write you know, 5,000 words of flowery exploration prose at having triumphed across this continent and having taken this group of people, the future destiny of America, that sort of thing. But he doesn't, he's just completely silent. And Clark is really talking about, you know, can we get enough food in the men so that they uh, have enough energy to go around the bend uh, tomorrow if the weather clears up a little bit. So it was a miserable winter on the Pacific coast and they weren't really happy until they got back to Montana. Once they crossed the Bitterroots on the return journey, and it was even more difficult than on the outbound, they wind up in today's Missoula, Montana, and and suddenly there are Buffalo in infinite numbers and all their worries are over.
1: And I bet they just had a feast. Uh, there is something I want to hit on and that is the journaling who is behind that, because the reason we know so much about this expedition is the journals that were kept. So who was the person that had that idea?
0: Yes. Um, behind it was Thomas Jefferson. So this is, again, a great question and something of a mystery. So Jefferson, in his famous instructions that he wrote on the 18th of June, 1803, says to Lewis, you know, keep a record of, of your travels. And when you have moments of leisure, get copies of them in case something happens and maybe send back copies if there's some way to send back some. But be sure that you don't lose anything. Um, the instructions are are really a fascinating document of the enlightenment and they show the breadth and genius of thomas jefferson It was a very tall order for poor lewis but what jefferson really really wanted miles was latitude and longitude so you know, this is the grid of the earth so you know exactly where you are if i if i tell you the latitude and longitude of bismarck north dakota where i am today any person anywhere on earth can can pinpoint it on a globe or a map And this was a new science. Longitude is a very complex issue, and it was just coming into its own. Uh, Latitude is easy uh, or comparatively easy. And so Jefferson wanted these coordinates of where the natives lived, where the confluences of the rivers were, where the source of the Missouri was, where uh, the, uh, the Rocky Mountains interlocked with the Columbia and Missouri systems. He wanted latitude and longitudinal coordinates for every important thing that another explorer would be able to recognize. And Lewis spent hundreds of hours trying to do this, but his data have never made any sense to mathematicians. And so in this sense, Jefferson was quite disappointed with the expedition, but the expedition members took the journal keeping very seriously. So Lewis kept a journal, although it's fragmentary. Clark kept a journal that's almost 100% complete. John Ordway, one of the sergeants, never missed a day. Patrick Gass, one of the sergeants, kept a journal and and turned it into a book, so we don't have the original anymore. Joseph Whitehouse was the only private that kept a journal, and it's not complete, but it's a a really amazing document. Um, Charles Floyd kept a journal, but he died uh, just a few months into the expedition. And one other man, Robert Frazier, certainly uh, we know kept a journal, but it's lost. But even so, what we have, Lewis, Clark, Ordway, Gass, and Whitehouse, uh, gives us 13 stiff and stout volumes edited by Gary Moulton of the University of Nebraska. So we have um, more than a million words, and Lewis and Clark have been called the writingest explorers in American history, and that's a just conclusion. But the one thing we want more of is Lewis, and Lewis is missing for 451 days, which is over half of the expedition. And I have a chapter in my book, the character of Meriwether Lewis about this. And I think I've made sense of it, but Lewis did not keep a journal for about half of the expedition and everyone who loves the story wishes that he had.
1: I am so grateful for Thomas Jefferson for having that foresight and for having them do that because of that, we know so much about this expedition that we can keep learning from everything combined into this just made it a perfect storm.
0: Well, there are other explorations of this time. So, Zebulon Pike went up the Mississippi River in 1805 looking for its source. He then went up the Arkansas River in 1806 and got himself arrested by the Spanish colonial authorities. Freeman um, was exploring the Red River in Texas. Dunbar was exploring the Washita River in Arkansas and others. And yet, we know almost nothing about them. They're just they're, they're Wikipedia names to us. But the Lewis and Clark expedition is the most famous expedition in American history, more than Fremont, uh, you know, more than John Wesley Powell, arguably more than Apollo 11. And the reason why it's famous is that it was led by a brilliant, if somewhat troubled, young man, Meriwether Lewis, and that the, the patron of the thing, the, whose brainchild it was, is none other than America's uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Thomas Jefferson. And so Jefferson's personal interest in this story and, and, the, and his handpicking of Meriwether Lewis and the, the sort of epic nature of it from sea to sea and its great success uh, is the reason why it's exalted. Uh, and James Rondo, who was the greatest Lewis and Clark scholar, still alive, but, but retired, said at the opening of the bicentennial in, in 2003, that Lewis and Clark is, is America's first great journey story. And that, I think, is such an important part of American life. John Steinbeck's journeying, Jack Kerouac's journeying, uh, Robert Piercing's journeying, William Heat Moon's journeying, you know, the Westward Movement, the pioneers, that America's really a journey story from sea to sea. And the first great iteration of that was Lewis and Clark. But if you take Jefferson out of the picture, it's less, much, much, much less. If you take Lewis out of the picture, it's also less, because even though he was a little bit wacky, um, it, he's a genius too. Uh, Clark is not. Clark is just the ideal second guy, but he would not be the great uh, expedition leader. So we're very, very fortunate in this, that Jefferson had this fas- uh, this fascination. You know, Madison didn't, his successor. H- uh, his predecessor, uh, John Adams, didn't have this fascination. Even George Washington was not as fascinated by the West. It was Jefferson alone who believed that the West was America's destiny. And he happened to be president at a time when uh, he could send this expedition to do it, when the West was still uh, howling wilderness from a white perspective.
1: There are so many stories that we can take away from the Lewis and Clark expedition I have loved this conversation. It has been so rich, and I really hope a lot of my listeners and a lot of men everywhere look into this story because with their completing of the expedition and their planning and never giving up and going through all these tough times, there are many things that we can take away from it. So, Clay, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Before we end, where can people learn more from the books that you've written? How can they kind of get into this, do you have anything else that they can look into in order to learn more?
0: Well, they can go to my website. So there are two of them, Thomas Jefferson uh, Hour, jeffersonhour.com. And there's lots there and a new website, Listening to America with Clay Jenkinson. So I'm I'm embarking on my own great journey story here. And they can go to ltamerica.org for that. They can also subscribe to the journal of Lewis and Clark. I edit it. It's a quarterly. It's beautiful. It's called We Proceeded On. And if you just go to the web and, and type in We Proceeded On, it'll take you to Great Falls and you become a member of the Lewis and Clark Trail Heritage Foundation. And it's, it's a really interesting, glossy 40 or so page quarterly journal. And the price is right. They can come on my tours every summer. I lead a Lewis and Clark tour in Montana and Idaho. It's the best week of my best 10 days of my life people can sign up at jeffersonhour.com or jeffersonhour.org. I have a book that I'm very proud of. It's, I think, my most important book called The Character of Meriwether Lewis, Explorer in the Wilderness. You can find that at Amazon or in your local independent bookstore. That's The Character of Meriwether Lewis. But the best way is just to go to my my main website, jeffersonhour.org, and you'll find uh, links to every possible thing. I've written 13 books, but um, but two of them are on Lewis and Clark and more coming.
1: Great. Well, Clay, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about Lewis and Clark.
0: It's my great delight. You know, This is the story that, that never ceases to be fascinating, and I hope that we've encouraged some of your listeners to, uh, to take a look at it.
1: This was a huge treat for me, and I hope it was for you. I don't want to add anything more to this than what Clay has given us, So we're just going to end this one with another manly mystery sound. Let me know if you can guess it.